I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending October 4th. In this episode, we have subretinal chips, tracking down intransigent parking malefactors, voice control, tiny Instalabs. It was all at the annual MEMS and Imaging Sensor Summit in Grenoble last week. We sent not one, but two EE Times editors. We'll hear from them about what they saw in France. Also this week, connecting the Internet of Things. Long ago, when people started planning for the Internet of Things, one of the requirements was a way to connect all the things that would make up the IoT. Naturally, many proposals sprouted up, perhaps too many. Some relief is here, though. We'll have a discussion with advocates of Wi-Fi and LoRaWAN on how those two wireless protocols will complement each other. We're also going to focus on a weakness in the semiconductor market that no one else seems to have identified. The memory segment of the semiconductor industry has long been characterized by boom and bust cycles. Though in recent years, the peaks and troughs have not been very severe, more and more people seem to think that that's the new normal. But what if it isn't? What is concerning right now, Junko, is that we don't really know. We don't really have people in key positions anymore who have actually experienced the wild swings of the market. When you have not experienced it, or when you think that those swings have gone away, then you're not prepared for how to manage it. This is something every semiconductor manufacturer, every OEM, every um, distributor, every contract manufacturer, folks in purchasing and engineering have to be aware of. You need to pay attention to the cycle. It has not gotten away. It is still there. That was Balaji Ojo, Global Editor-in-Chief of Aspen Core Media, the publishing company that includes EE Times. Balaji has semiconductor forecasting on his mind. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. Topping the show this week, a trip to the annual MEMS and Imaging Sensors Summit in Grenoble, France. The market for microelectromechanical systems, or MEMS, and sensors represents roughly one-tenth of the world's semiconductor market. In 2018, that made MEMS and sensors a $46 billion industry. That includes everything from radars and lidars being built into cars to the accelerometers in your smartwatches that count your steps. At the show, STM Microelectronics said three trends are driving the sensor market. Smart mobility, power and energy management, and the Internet of Things. Some of the specific applications include artificial intelligence, digital health, smart cities, and smart transportation. EE Times editors Nitin Dehad and Anne-Francoise Pelle were at the event. Nitin caught up with Francoise Semillon a strategic program manager at the French research institute, Letty. He's also an organizer of the summit. Nitin asked him about the high-level trends in sensors and MEMS. We observe a, a strong convergence between microelectronics and, and photonics towards uh, smaller and smarter devices. And uh, thanks to 3D integration uh, techniques like uh, wafer-level uh, 3D stacking, we see more and more intelligence at the edge. And I would even say that we see more and more artificial intelligence at the edge. So it's very, very strong uh, trend that we observe in these times. Later, Nitin and Anne-Francoise got together and reviewed what they saw at the summit. 
So uh, we heard quite a lot about uh, all different kinds of technologies and applications and market forecasts. Do you want to give me a little bit about uh, the uh, how the MEMS market is holding up here in this, uh, what you know, might be called a gloomy economy? Well, um, as you know, the MEMS market follows the semiconductor market. Um, it was a pretty good year last year, um, but with a slower growth rate than expected. Um, I attended Yol Development uh, keynote, and they said that the MEMS market reached $11.6 billion in 2018, with consumer applications accounting for more than 60% of the total market. So what do you think? Is, are we heading for a good future? What do they, they have to say? Well, it seems like it, um, since they said that... Um, the MEMS market is expected to grow at 8.2 annual rate up to 2024. So I guess okay. so. And, and uh, what's driving that, I suppose? It's the usual stuff or tell me you know, what you think? Um, well, um, they said that pressure, RF, inertial and emerging MEMS, um, such as micro speakers and ultrasonic fingerprints should lead the market and be the drivers for uh, their years to come. Hmm. So um, you attend the, uh, attended the MEMS track, um, and uh, I think you probably wanted to highlight uh, one or two of those. Maybe uh, I think you want to talk a little bit about what Bosch Sensatech was talking about? Well, actually, um, at the end of the, um, of the, the MEMS track, um, there was the common idea, like a consensus that sensor fusion coupled with AI and eventually edge computing will create new use cases. And as yeah. you said... Um, I was very interested by the keynote um, of Marcus Ulm, CDO of Bosch Sensor Tech. Um, what I liked about it is that he actually introduced himself as a hardware guy, um, hobby programmer, and said that he was convinced, fully convinced, that software is making a difference in our to our industry. So how is that? Uh, in, in what way? Um, well, we know that the situation used to be the MEMS. Well, we knew, we knew the, the MEMS slow. One product, one process. Um, obviously, the standardization in MEMS is really is still not advanced as um, it is in the conventional semiconductor processes and model, uh, model environments. But MEMS technology has developed very much in recent years. And um, um, he almost thinks that software is one of the major enablers to change this current paradigm and really make commercial sense. Right. Well, uh, as you know, I attended the imaging uh, track uh, for most of the, the two and a half day conference. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you see as the key trends? Like, tell me about it. What was... Um, very interesting for you. What, um, um, in what sense were you surprised by what was said during the, the this track? Okay, so um, in fact, I think strong. Uh, uh, there's a strong convergence between microelectronics and photonics, and uh, uh, that's coupled with smaller and smarter devices. And there was a lot of talk, uh, of uh, as, as we always hear at these conferences, of more than more, and you know, sort of getting more performance using wafer-level 3D stacking, for example, so that you can get more intelligence at the edge. So there's that whole uh, trend. And then uh, 3D sensing, I think, uh, is, is, is a big one. And then hyperspectral imaging was one of those which sort of surprised me in terms of the focus on that. Um, uh, so we heard uh, about a lot of the technology and the applications. 
Oh, good. Very interesting. Um, anything you want to highlight in particular? So two things I think uh, struck me, and, and that's uh, in this whole sort of conversation that the industry and, and sort of beyond industry, uh, sort of in, in you know, the consumer world, we're talking about, uh, or the public world rather, smart cities and uh, health. And to highlight that, there were very, very strong examples. And on the uh, smart cities, for example, I, the uh, the lady from PNI Sensor uh, basically was telling us that uh, there's nobody really doing smart cities uh, as a big sort of whole smart city end to end, but there's a lot of smart verticals, and one of those that they're addressing is smart parking, and uh, she she did highlight some good examples uh, of of uh, smart parking that they've implemented in in Amritsar in India in. Uh, Montreal, uh, the city of Montreal in California. Uh, and uh, what surprised me is that, uh, yeah, I would have thought smart uh, things, you know, don't really generate a return on investment, but all of these uh, cities were generating a return on investment. And you can read about that in our uh, 10 things uh, that we liked at, uh, uh, at the conference. And then the other thing was the healthcare, and specifically uh, what impressed me, and again, you'll see that in, in our write-up, is um, a implanted subretinal photodiode array for people who have uh, age-related macular degeneration, which is actually quite uh, quite a common thing. And what they've done is they've got a breakthrough um, subretinal wireless chip, which actually mimics the retinal function. You know, you know what? Uh, I can wax lyrical about this but uh the way this this enables people you know to process images and and see images it seems like uh yeah it is a way forward there are more details on these and other projects in the article that nitten and anne francoise wrote on the ee times webpage with this podcast there's a link directly to their story the internet of things was envisioned many many years ago one of the open questions was how they'd connect Possible existing options included Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and Zigbee, but those were mostly for local area networks, LANs. And many IoT applications would require a wireless protocol that could cover more space, a wide area network, or WAN. And so, engineers started proposing wireless WAN options. There were Waitlist, Sigfox, LoRaWAN, N-Wave, Ingenue, and more. Some are still with us, some not. Telephone companies, meanwhile, proposed the use of 3G, 4G, and then 5G for the IoT. The thing is, any given wireless connectivity option might be good for one subset of applications, but not for others. The profusion of options all got very confusing very quickly, and it's been that way for some time. Advocates for Wi-Fi are represented by the Wireless Broadband Alliance, or the WBA. Advocates for LoRaWAN are represented by the LoRa Alliance. The WBA and LoRa Alliance got together earlier this year and a couple of weeks ago published a white paper on how the two wireless schemes can be used to complement each other to create new business opportunities. I recently recorded a conversation with Bruno Tomas, the WBA's Director of Programs and Project Management, and with Remy Loren, the LoRaWAN ambassador from LoRa Alliance member company Semtech, where he's the global LoRaWAN networks director. I asked 
Bruno and Remy, to characterize where the market is for wireless IoT connectivity in order to put into perspective where the market might be going. The first voice you hear will be Remy Lorenz. Across the world, um, players, engineers, business owners have been uh, developing uh, for the last 20 years more than 20 different technologies. Uh, it's a good sign for the market that it means that it raises, it brings innovation on the market. But on the other hand, of course, it, it brings a lot of confusion. And that's the question now of uh, interoperability. So uh, with regards to LoRaWAN and Wi-Fi, the, their characteristic is to be completely complementary in the IoT, uh, to get a global footprint, which uh, eliminating some uh, risk of non-interop. And of course, these two technologies are completely focused on scaling up uh, and interop each other. Uh, to be the most complementary possible, because in the world, no technology is able to address all the use cases. Right. So the inability to drive all use cases is kind of what's going on here. Can you give us a rundown of uh, the characteristics of LoRaWAN and the characteristics of Wi-Fi and how... Uh, where there might be some overlap and where each of them would be good for uh, different use cases. So uh, regarding uh, Wi-Fi, um, of course, I, I will let uh, Bruno explain. Uh, regarding LoRaWAN, we are a low power, uh, long range and low throughput technologies for mostly sensor-based application. Uh, so we serve uh, most of the time hard to reach areas where you cannot intervene easily to replace your sensors for a 10 to 15 years time. So I will let uh, Bruno explain uh, what Wi-Fi is doing in, in that space. Yeah, that's certainly that. That sounds good. And in fact, uh, based on also this this history of, of IoT evolution. Um, I, I started to, to work and look into this area where um, the industry was still calling it machine to machine and, and has evolved ever since. But I believe one thing is common to, um, let's say, this 10 to 15 years is that everyone is looking uh, for the best use cases to fit the technology. And in terms of the Wi-Fi, bringing an external um, type of perspective for the first time uh, with the dawn of, uh, of new generation of Wi-Fi 6 that is coming, um, the issues that uh, were reported in, in, in the past are, are being solved. So this means that uh, two simple things such as being more efficient uh, when lower data rates are required, so allowing devices to use less power or support greater coverage ranges, uh, it's coming to to become a reality and, for instance, significant uh, device battery life. So if you look into operators that are investing Wi-Fi to cover normal users or, or citizens or uh, enterprise, but at the same time, uh, they also have a lot of infrastructure. And uh, for specific use cases that uh, Remy mentioned, it makes a perfect fit if you can combine both in the same box and save some costs and have better and more efficient deployments. Well, let's talk about some of those uh, potential deployments. Are there use cases? Are there examples of 
some of your uh, colleagues in the uh, various alliances that you represent? Are there examples of where they're uh, finding that they have an application that requires some communication between a network that is being connected via LoRaWAN with a network that's being connected via Wi-Fi? The most famous uh, application of LoRaWAN and Wi-Fi is today the location. I mean, uh, one of the uh, largest applications of the IoT is to locate uh, assets or objects, or can be moving or fixed. So there is no perfect uh, technology for that. Wi-Fi allows to locate accurately uh, objects, where LoRaWAN uh, is able to locate with less accuracy but less battery consumption. So. Uh, the thing is that we, ha we saw uh, several applications in the world where you use Wi-Fi in the building for an accurate location, and you can switch on LoRaWAN where you are outdoor and you want to save your battery, but you will get some uh, less accurate uh, location. So, in a way, you leverage the strength of each of the technology we explained in the beginning of the call. Excellent. That's um, that's a kind of a category. Um, are there uh, are there any specific instances of uh, someone trying to implement that, or somebody wanting to do what you just described? You've got tens of, if not hundreds, of solution makers in the world today uh, building a chip with uh, the Wi-Fi and the LoRaWAN capabilities. Uh, I mean, today in the location techniques with a device moving from indoor to outdoor, it's become a kind of uh, basic uh, on the market, uh, state of art of the market uh, to use the two technologies. It's not something emerging, it's something already up to speed. Are, are we talking about uh, smartphones or some other device? So... Uh, of course, uh, this uh, common application have uh, started to uh, scale up on the B2B market. And today, you don't have on the consumer market uh, that kind of application. So it's focused on the B2B market. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to uh, imagine what, uh, what uh, the specific uh, device might be, what it is that someone might carry around from inside a building uh, to outside, uh, uh, an identification badge, for example. Um, are, what, what type of thing are we talking about? Imagine a car maker uh, having to transport parts across Europe. And maybe most of the time you are in a lorry, in a truck. So you don't need an accurate location. You just need to know in which country you are and uh, near which city. When you arrive at the factory, and here uh, you have to manage your logistic on site, and you, de you, you need a more accurate uh, location at the time you arrive uh, uh, in, in the target factory. Okay, so that, that's a very good example. Got it. Thank you. Um, a moment ago, you mentioned that there are many manufacturers um, uh, developing silicon. Um, does, are we talking about um, are we talking about ICs that combine uh, both uh, transceivers for both Wi-Fi and uh, and LoRaWAN on board on the same chip, or are we talking about chipsets? Or so you've got uh, uh, two ways to do that. Uh, basically, it's exactly what you 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 said. 
visant uh, solution makers or device makers uh, gathering the two chips, the Wi-Fi chips and the uh, LoRaWAN chips on the same motherboard. That's one way to do. And there are also some uh, developments uh, at the module uh, level uh, to embed the two technologies and not to only rely on the basic chips, I, I, I would say, but to optimize for battery consumption, uh, consumption most of the time, uh, the way you collect the data. So either you can take off the shelf Wi-Fi and LoRaWAN chips, or you develop at the module level or at the chip level more sophisticated uh, system. But it's always at the chip level, right? Uh, what can you tell us about um, some of the infrastructure? So we just talked about the chips. What type of, uh, are, are we talking about uh, different types or categories of base station? How would, uh, how would the infrastructure be developed? So it comes to the main point here. Uh, you, you can easily understand that deploying two networks costs twice <laughs> or two. <laughs> and the, the, the beauty of uh, uh, it, it's exactly what you explain uh, in the white paper. Wi-Fi has been deployed across the world for more for tens of years. You have a huge uh, Wi-Fi infrastructure with access point across the world. We can talk about more than 200 million units. And it's about uh, deploying the LoRaWAN gateways at the same location as the Wi-Fi access point, and therefore thus uh, reducing your network cost by a significant factor. So I mean, that's, that's, that's a key opportunity for the two technologies to leverage the same network at the gateway level, but also at the cloud level. If I can complement, and, and I believe this is an especially uh, interesting point for uh, those deploying these technologies, is that even though you may already have, let's say, either Wi-Fi or LoRa, um, if you do this colocation, there are a lot of opportunities at the service level uh, in trying to align uh, several aspects of the infrastructure. So, for instance, identity management. Of course, a question comes, what we do regarding policies? So, if I have a client uh, that is supporting both Wi-Fi and LoRa, what type of decisions can be made? So, some of the work we have been developing on the interoperability uh, of both technologies goes around identifying the specific mechanisms for identity handling. So, for instance, with LoRa, of course, we have the NetIDs, the Join UI, the Dev UI. So all this session definition, chargeable user identities, record handling is something that we have been working to align processes and procedures. So there are opportunities for um, if you want just, for instance, inbound rooming or if you want to receive other type of clients that theoretically could not connect to your network, there are solutions now that can start to, to apply that. And of course, we are talking about a licensed world. That's another very interesting commonality between both. So Wi-Fi, of course, uses unlicensed bands. LoRa uses also an unlicensed band. So the learnings that we have from the Wi-Fi industry and by working with the, the LoRa Alliance, I think is proving very useful for those looking to, to deploy um, both systems. Fantastic. Yeah, you mentioned uh, LoRa and uh, Wi-Fi are unlicensed. Uh, there are, there's a prominent licensed uh, protocol out there. We've got uh, 4G and 5G. Um, also have ambitions to help support the Internet of Things 
or, or Internet of Things applications. Um, can we conceive of a time when end users will find ways to integrate not just LoRa and Wi-Fi, uh, but might there also be 4G and 5G use cases uh, that uh, they'd allow that uh, we could conceivably see being integrated somehow into a a larger wireless system? So. I like your question because we are uh, in the 5G story, uh, 5G hype, and everybody is talking about uh, cellular IoT, right? That was your question, I think. And look at Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi has been proving to the market that there is a, a very um, fruitful collaboration between cellular uh, and Wi-Fi. Do you know that today Wi-Fi is carrying uh, most of 50% of the voice traffic across the world? Not many people know that. So it's the, it's the good illustration that an unlicensed uh, technology can collaborate with a licensed technology to uh, increase the business value. And I, I think that for LoRaWAN uh, in the 5G, it will be exact, exactly the same story as uh, uh, Wi-Fi. Uh, I mean, cellular IoT cannot access uh, all the use cases. So in a way, uh, at the end of the day, we need to serve customers. And I think that the 5G charter is clever in a way that in the 5G specification, there is a kind of a huge work of interconnection with non-3GPP uh, technologies. Wi-Fi is already in. LoRaWAN is uh, currently looking at possible ways to interconnect. But I think that's the, the way the future will be. Uh, tomorrow, it will be impossible to have either uh, uh, cellular uh, technology or uh, non-cellular technology to cover so many verticals. And only the collaboration, the interconnection will solve the, the business uh, problem. <laughs> One big happy family. Yeah, sure. Ah, it's, it's, it's like a family. <laughs> sometimes it, it happens well. Sometimes we can argue. But at the end, we serve the same market with the same objective. It's to address uh, all the use cases, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and we have a very good concept for, for this family. So we, we call it, in fact, REM convergence here on our, at least, the alliance priorities. And the main objective here is to basically help the operators with whatever, whatever investments they are doing today and investing in uh, Wi-Fi 6, in uh, LoRa 1. So all of that carries on being completely um, reusable by the 5G system, 5G services. So for the first time, I think we are decoupling a bit what is the, the, the new radio and what is the service level and all the work as Remy pointed out that we have been doing around the last 10 years for achieving a very good Wi-Fi offload all our collaboration with the, with the GSMA um, is leading also to guarantee that we'll have this interoperability in, in the near term and those protocols that were built for, for roaming and that work now uh, the idea is more and more that unlicensed technologies bring a proposal to make the investments more effective so that was Bruno Tomas from the WBA, which represents Wi-Fi interests, and Remy Lorano of Silicon Vendor Semtech, speaking on behalf of the LoRa Alliance. We've got a link on the podcast transcript page for their joint paper. Every company does financial and market forecasting. Semiconductor companies are no different on that score. As we get to the end of 2019, 
industry executives and industry analysts are naturally looking ahead to 2020. But the semiconductor industry is subject to trends specific to the electronics business. One of those is the boom and bust cycle of the memory segment of the market. Balaji Ojo is global editor-in-chief of Aspen Core Media. He's been covering the semiconductor industry for a long time. As predictions for the semiconductor industry in 2020 roll in, Bola thinks they're all forgetting something fundamental. Here he is with international editor Junko Yoshida. This is a new section. We call it, What's on Bola's Mind This Week? So let me ask you this. What's on your mind this week? What's on my mind is Micron Technology, the DRAM and the memory market, the semiconductor market, and especially this key question of whether or not the electronics industry, uh, or rather the semiconductor market, has gotten rid of its notorious boom and bust cycles. That's what's on my mind. Is it, I mean, um, well, everybody knows that uh, this, is, this, is, this is an eternal cycle for memories. So what's your take? What's going to happen next year? Well, actually, you know, let, before I address the issue of what's going to happen next year, this is the thing that's been happening now. Over the course of the last maybe three to five years, everybody thought the industry got rid of its cycle. So uh, they became very mild. And now all of a sudden, we've now seen a return to crazy cycles. So here are the examples of craziness, okay? Take a look at what's happening in the industry. You look and see in the first half of this year, Samsung Electronics, its sales for the first six months of 2019 went down 33%. SK Hynix down 35%. Micron Technology down 29%. Qualcomm down 11%. And on and on, NVIDIA down 21%. Many of these companies are in which sector? They are in the memory market. And when you want to look at what's happening in the electronics, in the semiconductor market, if you want to see what's happening now and what's happening going to happen in future, you have to start by looking at the memory market. Now, that was in the first half of the year. In August, okay, yeah, for, the, for the quarter ended in August and its fiscal year ended August 30. Micron reported its latest revenue, okay? And again, you see the same pattern. Year over year, sales down 42% for the August quarter sales. That's huge. I mean, in what other market and in what other industry do you see this kind of decline? That is what is happening, and that's why this is on my mind. The fact that somehow, because we managed to get hold of our inventory overruns, now we think, oh, okay, you know what, we've gotten rid of the cycles. That's not the case. And this has very significant implications for the industry. The moment you think that you've gotten rid of the cycles, then you don't pay close attention again to things like CAPEX, to things like inventory, to things like pricing. Now, average pricing, ASP, as they call it in the industry, is now all over the place, sliding down on one side in the DRAM, kind of farming up elsewhere. So many of the people, and I think, Junko, you've written about this sometime in the past, many of the folks in the industry today, especially the young ones, they've not really experienced the real cycle of this market. So let me ask you then. Well, well yeah, wait, wait, sure. before you go, I just, I just, where did you get the notion that people were thinking that they were able to get rid of this cycle? It's all over the place. 
Oh, no, well, you, you, you will not think of that. You will not think of it like that. But a lot of people thought, and there have been articles about this. All you need to do is Google it. And you'll see articles where people are saying, well, the industry is now, you know, is now kind of cycle free because components, electronic components now go into almost every segment of the, of the global economy. As a result, you know, the cycles that are kind of very specific to the market have now been, you know, kind of like, you know, silently we've pressed it down to the point where we can manage it. Right, right. Well, back in the days, 1990s, for example, memory market was really uh, limited to things like servers and workstations and PCs. Now what you're saying is memories, well, chips in general, I mean, they go everywhere, right? So the uh, available total market has really broadened. That sort of uh, the, the, the third sort of theory goes, the bigger the market is, the cycle you know, threat somehow has lessened. And I, and I think that what, what is concerning right now, Junko, is that we don't really know. We don't really have people <clears throat> in key positions anymore who have actually experienced the wild swings of the market. When you have not experienced it, or when you think that those swings have gone away, then you're not prepared for how to manage it. This is something every semiconductor manufacturer, every OEM, every um, distributor, every contract manufacturer, folks in purchasing and engineering have to be aware of. You need to pay attention to the cycle. It has not gotten away. It is still there. So your prognosis for 2020? Well, I mean, what, what a lot of people are seeing right now is that it's going to be better. 2020 is going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. People have written off Q4. And I, <laughs> why? I cannot, why? <laughs> why, is, why is 2020 going to be great? I, I don't subscribe to it. Um, you know, look, the reason I don't, because I'm, you can never really be sure. Anybody who tells you that they can see further out than 60 days in this industry, is just fooling you and fooling themselves. That kind of force, that kind of outlook, that kind of ability to look penetratively into the supply chain and the demand chain has gone away. We don't just don't have it because there are too again for the very specific reason that there are too many sectors of this industry, of the of the global economy rather, that components, electronic components go into. So you don't really know which one is just going to suddenly shoot up and propel the market higher. And you don't know which one might just suddenly kind of fold and crater the entire industry. So I cannot tell you, I mean, you know, when I'm looking at the DRAM numbers and I look at a market decline of 42%, then I'm asking myself, you know, well, what's going to happen next year? We're going to see a, a snapback. If you see a snapback of another 42%, then maybe you're back 50%, you're back at the same point. But So you need to grow faster than that to actually see stronger growth. And what's that going to mean, Junko, for CapEx? I'm writing a blog now that I'm going to share with you later on. And my question about that is, are we going to start another panic in this industry where companies start cutting capital expenditure, they start cutting on R&D, they start laying off people in thousands because they want to keep margins at a, great, at a good level. If you do that, and then in March 2020, the market suddenly snaps back. What do you get? You get a sharp upswing with no inventory in place. That's what's on my mind. The global economy has experienced more than 10 years of generally increasing prosperity. To assume that growth is going to go on just because 
seems to me a dicey combination of optimism, laziness, and arrogance. We'll have to see how 2020 plays out. That's your weekly briefing for the week ending October 4th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. You can get to this podcast on the EE Times website through services such as Blueberry, iTunes, and Spotify. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with links to the articles we refer to, along with photos and video. Check in with us next Friday for the next edition of EE Times On Air. I'm Brian Santos.